Tonight we have finally come to the end of one of the more difficult books in the Bible. Some of you have known this book long before it became precious to me and you have lived in this book. It's, it's been meaningful to you because you've demanded what's contained in it. Some of you may have learned a few things and been brought to a book that you might not have otherwise gone to. The hope is that this book has been opened up for you personally. That if you've been with us for the past 18 or so months, that you've been, you've been part of Job's ride, going along with him and his wrestling with God, even as he has to wrestle with suffering and loss and wrestle with friends who don't seem like friends who, through most of the book. Hopefully, as you wrestle, you have appreciated that in wrestling with suffering and with loss and with trials, that in wrestling with those times in which, in which the reason for the suffering is not obvious, is that you have a friend in Job and that you can learn something not only from Job and how he suffers, but by learning most especially from Job's God. I hope you remember this, this book of Job. It's not a, an explanation of why bad things happen to good people. That this book is, instead, it's about teaching us a higher kind of wisdom. Teaching us, as we learn from Job's suffering example, how to cling to the truth, and even more so, how to cling to our God, who is our only Redeemer. And so tonight, we come to the end of the book. We come to the end of Job's suffering. We've been through all those debates, and, and hopefully... You find yourself not as an outsider, but using the, the, the poetry of this book. Hopefully you find yourself as part of the conversation. Or at the very least, you know what's in this book. So when those days come, as they surely will at some point, as you, will, you will know that you have a friend here, not only in, in Job himself, but in his theology. And so let's pray and let's ask the Lord tonight to reveal us, even in this final portion of this book, what he would have us see from the wisdom of Job. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we need what you have to offer. We need that understanding that only you can grant. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who reveals himself. You have not yet left your people to sort out all the details for themselves, but you have spoken to us. And you have given us precious promises. And you granted to us wisdom. Lord, let us by these things take encouragement in our days. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let me remind you one last time of what's in the book of Job. In the opening chapter, we are exposed to a man who is very righteous, who is very prosperous, who is very blessed on every level. He was a man who is described in Job 1 as one who is blameless and upright, one who feared God and one who shunned evil. And that was all great until one day Job has something that happens to him because of something that happened somewhere else. There's a, a court scene in heaven where the angels come before God, they meet with him, and God actually provokes a debate with Satan when he says to him, have you considered my servant Job? To which Satan, the accuser, responds and he says, does Job fear God for nothing? Thereafter, God sovereignly hands Job over to Satan. And Satan does what Satan does. He is relentless in his hatred for the righteous and he carries that out to the fullest degree that the Lord allows. He ruins every bit of Job's future. He destroys everything of value in his life. He kills his children and his servants he destroys his crops. He takes all his livestock such that there's nothing left to him but his own person and his health. And then there's another conversation in heaven, and that too is taken away by Satan. He is inflicted with agonizing pain, covered head to toe with boils. Yet in all this, Job maintains faith. We're, we're exposed in, in the first chapter, the, those, those, those glorious words in the first two chapters, where Job says after the first round, he says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And then after the second episode in which his health is taken away, he says, Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And for both of those, the verdict from heaven is that in all of this, Job did not sin. He was a righteous man and he responded righteously. But Job still suffers and Job has friends in his suffering. He has his three dear friends who come to him and they do the things that Christians ought to do. They weep with those who weep. They mourn with Job for seven days. And finally, at the end of those days, Job breaks his, his silence and he laments with the, 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 one of the most wretched laments that you will ever read in Scripture. He laments the day of his birth and even the existence of that day. He curses the day that, that it would be better if that day had never been. And so his friends are overwhelmed with this lament and they begin to respond because they've, they've done the math. They've looked at Job's life. They've seen how much he suffered and they, they've come to a conclusion. This is a man who has great sin in his life. And this man clearly needs to repent. In some sense, they are doing what good friends do. They're trying to make sense of his suffering. They see it. And they want relief for Job. And so they go down the only path that they know. And they're going to be a guide to get him out of it. But the problem is, is that they have only one way of perceiving the problem. They, they, they think that if something evil happens to a person, it's because of an evil that they've done. They've, they've invited it upon themselves, especially someone who suffered the way Job did. They think bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. Job had been good for a long time, but then somewhere along the way he stumbled. And so he's getting what he deserved. And so they plead with him to repent. They, they, they launch into these, the, the poetic part of the book and they go into their dialogues, their debates with Job, where they try to convince him to repent of his lamentation and to repent of his self-righteousness. And they work hard at it. There are many words that are spent trying to convince Job how wrong he is. They, they start out warmly and just subtly suggest it, but then at the end they're wildly flinging accusations left and right of the, the evil that Job has done. And all of it, Job stands by his righteousness. In the course of doing that, he, he actually goes to God and still defends his righteousness before the holy God, saying, God, if you will only come down, if you will only be part of the conversation, if you will only hear me out, you will know that you have made a mistake, that this wasn't supposed to be this way, that I shouldn't suffer. And so in a sense, he, he, he embraces the theology of his friends, but he does so in a, in a prayerful way in where he, which he is still seeing God as the solution and not himself. Of course, you may remember there's a fourth person, Elihu, who comes into the picture, a young man who's, who's very grumpy, who's very angry and very confident in himself. And he has lots of things to say, but somehow they don't move the conversation forward. The only thing they do is prepare us to receive God into the picture. And he does so by saying, God is never going to speak to you. And then... God speaks. Job gets his, his long-requested audience with God. He's complained that there's been a mistake. Now the, the one who has made the mistake is standing before him. And what's he going to do? Well, it wasn't as he had imagined. When Job sees God, when he's introduced to God, he comes to, to Job in the whirlwind. And he speaks from the whirlwind to Job. He speaks out of the whirlwind. Imagine how horrifying this would be, a hurricane in your face and the voice of God coming from that hurricane. And he says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And he says, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. And question him, God does. The, the, those, those final four chapters are, are the, the, the questions of God, questions that have a lot of assertions. 
There's a lot of revelation about God in that. In the first, the first round of God's speech, he, he reveals to himself as a master, as Lord over all creation, over all the, the fine details of everything that is. And then he also, in the second speech, goes on to reveal himself, not only as the master of all things, but especially as the master of evil. He is the divine warrior, the conqueror, who will defeat evil in the end. But then there's a shock in this. There's, there, there's something that, that, that you may have been wondering, you may have been asking, where's the explanation of Job's suffering? At no point, in, in, in when God finally speaks to Job, does he say, oh Job, let, let me go ahead and tell you what's been going on here. Let me, let me invite you into the picture and, and, and tell you something that, that took place a little while back that, that will help you understand and make sense of all the things in your life. He never hears about what took place in heaven. He never hears about the accuser coming into the presence of God. He never hear, hears of the question, does, God fear, does Job fear God for nothing? And all of that remains a mystery to him throughout all that God, that God says and what he will continue to say and do. And that brings us to, to what and how Job responds to meeting God. Last week, last Sunday evening, we looked at Job 42, verses 1 through 6, and we heard of Job's repentance. And in that repentance, Job finally makes the, this faithful confession before God. After, after hearing the Lord speak, after being overwhelmed with the presence of God, he repents. And he repents because he has a new awareness. He understands the magnitude of God, the glory of God in a way that he had not before. Not that he's comprehended all that God is. That, that would be impossible. But God has grown much larger for him. And now he is overwhelmed simply by the presence of God and the power of God. And all his, his arguments about his innocence and all his questions about God's justice, all his pleas to, to have an audience so that he could set things right, all of those disappear and it's no longer part of his speech. You think about all the times in your life you planned out a speech and you finally get that moment where you're in front of the person and the speech just falls apart. It doesn't make sense anymore. You're just the, the, the wrong place, the wrong time. All that energy spent, misguided. This is where Job finds himself. All of that has been swallowed up by the presence and the voice, the declaration of God about himself. He now sees God in his wisdom. He now sees God in his power. He now sees God in his victory over evil. He has not only heard of God, of all the conversation that had gone on before, but now he sees God in a way he hadn't before. And then he looks at himself dif differently. He abhors himself. He repents in dust and ashes. But as we also saw, not only is, he, is it right to say he repents, it's also right to say that he is comforted. His posture had changed simply by the introduction of God into the equation, by God showing up and speaking. The mystery is still not solved. There's no resolution. There's no revelation that, on that specific detail about what went on, what was going on behind the scenes. But whatever he, he has, it's enough. That deeper mystery, all the whys of, of the universe become answered in the person of God. There, there's no problem of physics, no, no, no aspect of energy or of light or biology or mathematics or philosophy. There's none of those questions that you have when you encounter this holy, powerful God that you can't understand and immediately know that these problems are all solved in his person and in his work. And that's the, same, that's the same for the chaos in our lives. Whatever is a whirlwind to us, we know that it's all order in every detail to God. 
And that's because behind the whirlwind there is Christ. As Paul said in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, that are visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, even the evil things. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. There is order behind it all, and simply in knowing Him better, knowing Him more fully, you don't have to know all the details to know that these things are as they should be. But that's not the end of the story. And it, it, it could have been. That could have been the very end of the story with, with Job's confidence in, in, in this new place that he finds, this new way of seeing himself still sitting, boil-covered in dust and ashes with all of those losses. But that's not the end of the story. We have the passage that's before us tonight. And so let, let's look and let, let's see what God is doing in this final part of the book of Job. Look with me back at Job 42 in verse 7. Where it says, and so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you. What a horrifying thing to, to, to hear. There, again, there, there's, there's part of it that, that where there's, you know, righteous people desire you know, righteous vindication. There's a part of us where there's a little bit of glee at this. And there, there's this, this, this irony in this moment that's revealed here where now here, here is Eliphaz and the, and the two other friends that are standing behind him and the God is speaking to them. And what does he say to them? He says, my anger is aroused against you. Who's the sinner now? These men have been accusers for, for the, the multitude of the chapters that, that proceeded. They have, they have accused Job of sin after sin after sin. They, they, they've, they've been so confident that they've understood what was right and true. And now who has the, the, the bony finger pointed at them? You. But the guilt that they face is... The, is incurring the wrath of a holy God and, and that, that, that moment of joy that we kind of have to see them put in their place and Job vindicated is swallowed up when we think about the fact that he says, my wrath is aroused against you. There is no living human on the planet who would rather be anywhere else. You would rather be standing in front of a charging rhino. You would rather have one of Pastor Dodd's angry mobs coming at you, as he's talked about this morning. You would rather be stepping into the hangman's noose than to be in that position before a holy God speaking out of the whirlwind saying, My wrath is aroused against you. The only thing that could be behind that statement is hell and torment for all eternity. The wrath of God poured out on them. Why? Because of their words. Because of words that were ill-timed and ill-placed. Even in the course of trying to be friends, they had spoken lies upon lies. Too many theological words, too many righteous words, too many counseling words, too many problem-solving words that they sh were sure that they knew the answer on. And in the course of doing that, they have deeply offended this holy God. And now these three friends need a redeemer. Elihu's disappeared. We don't know what's happened to him. It's kind of maybe a function of Hebrew poetry that he goes away. But Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, their leader, they need atonement. So God says in verse 8, Take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams. You need substitutes and you need a lot. 
and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. Notice that it's to my servant Job. Glorious words. God is saying, this is my man. This is my chosen one. This this is the one that, that, that my blessing is upon. And I'm telling you to go to him to look for your redemption from your sin. And so Job began as he was doing in the beginning for his children where he was making sacrifices for them on their birthdays. As now he's doing the same thing again for his, for his friends that he did for his children. Job is going to intercede for them. He's going to pray for them. He's going to seek the goodness and the mercy of God on their behalf. And they desperately need Job to function in this way. Look at the next part of what happens. They, they do as they, they're commanded Because the Lord had accepted Job. And then it goes on in verse 10. It says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. It goes on and it details all of the ways in which God blessed him. He is is restored in his status. Job becomes again as he was before, the center of the community. His family and his friends come flocking back to them. They come to feast at his house. This is there was a feast in the beginning of the book with the children. Now there's a feast with all the friends and family and it's, it's for Job. He's no longer the object of loathing and of the gossip of the people and of the mocking of the dregs of society. He's been publicly vindicated in the highest court that there could possibly be. The Lord has declared him righteous before them all. He has witnesses that testify to it. Job is restored in his status. He's also restored in his fortune. Those people that come to him, they don't come empty-handed. They come bearing gifts. They, they, they bring gold and silver. It says that he accumulates double of all that he had lost in his livestock. But it doesn't stop there. Verses 13 and 15, all of those, those keenly, lost, keenly felt losses of his children. The great grief he had is blunted by the fact that God opens the womb of his wife and she gives birth to ten more children. That, that testifies to some reconciliation that took place between the husband and the wife. And now they, they, their home is once again has, has the sounds of children, seven more sons, three more daughters. And notice the commentary on the daughters. These daughters are astoundingly beautiful. They have these funny names, Jemima, Kezia, and Karen Hapa. Jemima means dove. Kesia uh, means, means is uh, cassia. It's a perfume. And Karen Hapa, you're going to like this, uh, means horn of eye paint. Um, it, 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 it testifies to the, pack, the, the fact that, that these women are astoundingly beautiful and everybody knows it and even their names testify. And they're so noble and they're so cherished that they receive an inheritance along with their brothers. His family is restored. And the final part we see in verses 17 through, 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 through uh, or in verse 17 is that Job joins with the patriarchs in, in being given the fullest of lives. He has 140 years to live. That's double the number 70. In other words, this is a really good, really big number. It's twice as long. As he should live. And in the course of time, he's able to see a second set of children into adulthood. And he's able to see their children grow up as well. And their children have children. There are now four generations in the family of Job that are, that are surrounding him. That have swallowed up the losses of those previous ten. Glorious how, how he has restored the magnitude of the mercy and grace of God that's poured out on him. But also pay attention to the when. Job 42.10, it says, And the Lord restored Job's losses 
when he prayed for his friends. It says something about the, the, the very beginning of the book when, when Satan had asked, does Job fear God for nothing? The implications being it's only because you bless him, only because you pour out your, your blessings on him. How, he, how could he not praise someone who gives him so much? But when is his fortune restored? His fortune is restored when he prayed. When did he pray? When he was still on the ash heap, when he was still covered in boils, before he had received back anything, when he was interceding for his friends still in his misery. After this, Job has his fortunes restored. The question is answered. Satan's speculations were wrong. Job's friends' speculations were wrong. And now in the end, God has been glorified and he is shown to be glorified because of his worthiness to be glorified. Job doesn't have to have everything be right. He can simply know God as God wants to be known. And he can say sufficiently that it is enough. Then Job is, 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 has his fortunes restored. Then he is vindicated and it magnifies the grace of God. This is part of what we understand about God's providence. Back in, in our Confession of Faith in chapter 5, we read this at Providence, that God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God in and of himself is sufficient reason to praise God. How he is, how he acts, all done in his wisdom and power is glorious and he should be celebrated. Whatever it is that comes into our lives, that we continue to celebrate him. And Job is teaching us how to do this. Job at this point is ready to live out his days in misery. The book could have ended without any of the restoration and we could have been satisfied with what Job saw, what he learned. How do, how do we respond to, to what this book teaches us? I don't think we, we want to miss the part uh, about taking sin seriously and especially the part about reflecting on God's wrath against well-intended words. How did his friends get into their position of facing the wrath of a holy God? They did it by speaking out of turn. They spoke things that they did not know. They had not a revelation that allowed them to speak with the authority that they were speaking. It's as the, the writer of Proverbs teaches us. Proverbs eighteen thirteen: He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. And that folly and shame is the kind that invites the wrath of God. Certain irony that in the next proverb, Proverbs 18, 14, we read this, The spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? Job was crushed both in body and spirit, and his friends did not come helping. They came piling on. They made his suffering worse. They compounded it with their words. And so do many fathers who don't know how to show compassion to a, to a fragile or a broken child. Wisdom is not owning a hammer and seeing the whole world as a nail. Problems have different solutions and sometimes you may not have the right tools for the job and sometimes your job is to sit back and pray and say, I don't know. 
but I'm going to entrust this person to God. I'm going to plead with God for, their, for mercy upon them. Sometimes you just don't have the full picture, so you need to listen longer and study more, and you need to wait patiently before you open your mouth to speak. That's certainly true whenever you go to speak for God, as his friends did. But on the other side, when we look at Job, we need to ask the question with Job, what kind of vindication are you looking for? Because again, Job had to endure so much before the Lord did vindicate him. And it was, it was painful. It was chaotic getting to the end of the story. There were no easy days until the Lord provided that vindication. But Job never lost sight of the fact, even, even when he stumbled, even when he said things that were out of turn, when he darkened counsel by words without knowledge, Job never missed this point that his hope was with God. His hope was in believing that God could enter into his life and restore whatever was, was missing. This is perhaps why when we come to our New Testament that James wants to speak of, of patience this way. He says in James 5, 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, notice and think how well this would have been applied to the friends. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and see the end intended and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. How long are you willing to wait for God? How long would you suffer and still continue to hold on to God and say that He is my righteousness? He is my vindication. This is why we read what we read tonight in our confession of faith when we talked about the, the, the last judgment and that final vindication that it's there, that it's waiting for us and that, that, that it, it may not be like Job was in his life, but that certainly points us in that direction of believing and hoping in those promises that are declared to us in the gospel that there is a day coming when our fortunes will be restored and not only will it be what we had that we lost, but it will be exceedingly and abundantly above all we could ask or think. That's how good and merciful God is for us in that last day. Even if we wait until the very end of this life, there is a life to come that Job points us toward. Revelation chapter 6, we read this of the saints. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? holy and true until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And a white robe was given to each of them. What does that white robe represent? Their vindication, their innocence, their justification before a holy God. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Friend, for you, I don't know where you are today or what is in your future, but a little while longer is an appropriate thing to say. Hold on by faith. Continue to cry out to the Lord. Look to Him for the life that only He can provide. And if it may be that you spend the next 40 years of your life in misery, hold on. 
believe, trust, wait, because that time is coming. Job certainly points us in this direction, and this vindication in this last chapter points us in this direction, and it also points us in a glorious direction in that, that this, along with the whole book of Job, is pointing us to Christ. Certainly Job was pointing us along the way. Remember his, his desire, he, he longed for one to be a mediator for him. To, to be a go-between but between he and God who, who, would, who would hear and speak on his behalf. He longed for a witness and for an advocate. As he did in Job 16. Someone who was on high who could, who could speak a voice in the presence of a holy God. In Job 19 he hoped for someone who would function as a kinsman redeemer. One who would, who would stand in his place. Who would, who would pay the price that was necessary to redeem him from his misery and suffering. Each of those times that he does that, he's crying out for the Lord Jesus Christ, that one who is the only one who can go to the Father and, and, and occupy that role and be that one who goes between, who stands in our place and, and, and does what needs to be done, which we can't do for ourselves. But not only does Job point us in that direction by the words that he testifies, but he also pictures Christ himself. He's a type. How so? First, he's a blameless man. Job's blamelessness, of course, was a general quality of life. He admitted along the way in some of his testimony about himself that he, he did have at least the sins of a younger man, but there is one who was entirely and totally blameless. One who is wholly harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Job also points us to Christ in that he was a righteous, righteous sufferer. Job's affliction were, his afflictions were without guilt on his part. And now Isaiah warned us as he prophesied that the Christ would suffer despite being one of favor. He said, says in Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be prosperous. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And then he says, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He went from prosperity and he, he came down to a place of great suffering. Yes, Job is pointing us to Christ. The third way he points us to Christ is that he is the servant of the Lord. Job is called in the beginning of the book and also at the end of the book. He is continued called by, by God in heaven as my servant. And Christ is called the servant. Again from Isaiah, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. As Jesus testified himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. He is, of course, the servant. A fourth way Job points us to Christ is that he is a priest to the friends. Just as we saw in this final chapter, Job has to, to function for them and what he was longing for, 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 for an intermediary, someone, someone to be a go-between. Now he's functioning in that role, but he's, he's pointing us to Christ in that. Christ would be a priest to many more friends. Hebrews 7.23 also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's his whole way of, of life. His existence is to make intercession for the people of this room. Those who believe in him. 
A fifth way, Job is a faithful mediator, one who stands between four of the friends. Just as we saw in the, in the, the reading of, of John 17 tonight, when Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone, but for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus Christ goes between for his friends. He, he prays for them on their behalf to pray for those good things that they need. And so Paul testifies that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The sixth way he points this is his feasting with his friends. Job welcomes his friends into the house and his, his final vindication. They come to him bearing gifts and how much more when, when on that last day in, in the triumph of glory, as we read in the book of Revelation, there will be the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty thundering, thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. We will throw down crosses before the feet of Christ. We will, we will give him those gifts that bring honor and glory to him as we never have in this life. Of course, the seventh is that Job was restored to glory. His prominence, his wealth, his, his blessings returned. And so our Christ has been raised from the dead to go into a greater glory as Paul again testified. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him that name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And every of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. And the tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His fortunes are restored. Also his children are restored. Job has a perfect number of children. Seven and three. But there's a more perfect number of children we read about in the book of Revelation. 144,000. Twelve times twelve times a thousand. The sons of Israel, the apostles of Jesus, all brought together in the assembly of the firstborn ones because of Christ, because of our adoption. And of course, Job has restored life. Job arose from sickness to live 140 years before death. Christ rose from the dead to live forever and to reign forever on high. My friends, when you look at Job and you look at this man in this book that's revealed to us, he should be taking you to the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be celebrating. But remember that celebration of Christ is celebrating a Christ who suffered. Job's suffering was providential. It was designed. It was on purpose. Even as it was executed by Satan, just as, as horrible terrors were inflicted upon Christ by Satan himself, yet again, according to God's design, that suffering meant something. Job's suffering was, was, was to an end to demonstrate God's worthiness and his, his righteousness, his, his, his being worthy of praise. But Christ's suffering accomplishes more. It testifies to that, that God is holy and demands sacrifice. But it also testifies to his love. He, having been perfected through suffering, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. How do we obey him? By believing who he is, our priest. Again, as Isaiah testifies, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted because he was. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him that by his stripes we would be healed. 
We all like sheep have gone astray. We have gone everyone his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have a better than Job, someone who suffered because he loved us. He suffered for us in order to redeem us. My friends, as you read this book, take comfort from the sufferings of Job, but more take suffering, take comfort from the sufferings of Christ because he is your only redeemer. The one that Job cried out for has come and he has come for you. Let's pray together. Our Lord, how we bless you. We bless your holy name for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for the vindication of Job, much more for the vindication of your son, our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection from the dead. It is our hope and comfort, and it reminds us that in this life, whatever may come, whatever suffering we may endure, however long it may go on, that we can wait on you because there is a glory that will come, and you will vindicate us on that last day, not because we ourselves are righteous and have no sin, but because Jesus, our substitute, is everything that he was called to be perfect in obedience. Oh, Lord, let us believe on him that we may live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.